2020 changed the trajectory of my life forever. I was 24, succeeding in a job that offered huge financial reward, yet I was unhappy and unfulfilled. My chronic illness, cystic fibrosis, had caused my lungs to bleed and it left me in a hospital bed. Now I left that job and created this podcast and I left that hospital bed to run marathons and prove that we aren't defined by our circumstances, but rather how we respond to them. On this show, we discuss the adversity that my guests and I face and how we overcome that adversity. This is A Lot To Talk About. G'day, g'day. Welcome back to another episode of A Lot To Talk About. It is your boy, the captain of the ship, the man in charge, Bradley J. Driver. Of course, you can call me Brad. Very excited to be here today. I'm up in Sydney at the Winning Group's HQ. I'm here with a guest that I had the pleasure of meeting just a couple of weeks ago at the Humankind event. We're speaking about neuroscience and particularly the neuroscience of self-knowledge, which I know for everyone listening or watching this podcast here today, you're going to get so much from this because I got so much from it myself. Today's guest is a neuroscientist. She is the chief strategy officer at Winning Group. She's the founder of the Deep Sphere Assessment, which we're going to dive right into today. Ladies and gentlemen, from your home, your car or wherever you are, Give a very warm welcome to the one, the only, Katarina Kuhn. How are you, Kat? <laughs> Thanks, Brad. Very well. Thank you. It's so good to be here. I reflected on our chat a whole lot. So for a bit of context for the listeners, at the Humankind event, you not only spoke and gave a keynote, which I was lucky enough to catch the back end of, and it was incredible, but you were sort of hosting a podcast similar to what we're doing today, where you were diving into the neuroscience of self-knowledge, taking people through the deep sphere assessment And if I'm getting this right, and I'm no expert, it was the four determinants of human personality and then how that applies to not only their life story, but how they can work with their hardwiring. Am I sort of hitting the nail on the head there or am I a bit off? No, absolutely. It's absolutely right. It's a very complex uh, topic and I'm sure we're going to get the time and chance to unpack it, hopefully. Um, But that's very true. Um, We talk about human nature and personality, um, not only by... Um, using simple descriptors, but actually looking at the different layers that make us who we are and um, to see how they shape our decision-making behavior um, at the deepest level. Yeah, I love it. I have to ask, firstly, why neuroscience, but more particularly, why the neuroscience of self-knowledge? Why is this important to you? To me personally? Mm. Well, I I grew up in Germany as the child of two psychotherapist parents, and I deliberately put that little gap in the middle of psycho and therapist because I think it was a little bit um, crazy at times, but it was also super interesting and shaped me into who I am, I think, always asking the questions of why behind the behavior. So that's for me kind of second nature to grow up with that innate desire to understand the why behind a behavior. Mm. And... um, and so then growing up, I got, of course, was interested in that and studied human behavior from different angles, first psych, um, sociology, um, so how we interact uh, in groups, and then consumer neuroscience, really looking at how the brain shapes who we are and how we behave, our cognitive and emotional processes. And, um, and so I think it's just never been more exciting than right now, where we learn more about the human brain, uh, brain and mind uh, on a daily basis pretty much because we've got so many new tools and ways of um, decoding it. And so this is why neuroscience brings a really different 
lens or a different depth to being able to understand who we are, looking at our neurobiology, at our brain chemistry, um, also, of course, mm. at the narratives that shape us into who we are. And therefore, I had the desire to build a model that is a more complete and holistic view of who we are, not just simple descriptors of here are your traits, but actually know what makes you who you are, looking at the brain science, looking at how your neurochemistry and your genetics inform you know, the starting point, let's say the foundation from which you work from, but then also how your prefrontal cortex develops as you grow up and the experiences that shape you and the narratives. Um, and so that was probably a very long-winded answer, but I think um, neuroscience, because it takes that understanding to the next level, uh, because I think when we talk about discovering who we are, it matters that it's accurate, it matters that it's profound, it matters, matters that it's um, diagnostic and explanatory and not just putting a label on people. Um, and so that's why I think the field has a lot to say about that topic. I love that. And, you know, you said long-winded. Anyone who listens to this show knows that I'm all for a long-winded answer. <laughs> That's all they ever hear from me. <laughs> I'm very relieved uh, to hear that. <laughs> I have to say, the thing that I think you and I have connected the most on over the course of our now few chats is this understanding that with all the problems and challenges that we face in life that many of us can relate to, like we all have similar challenges just with... Mm. I guess, different context, depending on what your circumstances are or your situation, probably the biggest challenge and the most important one for people to tackle is the question of, and it is a big question, who am I? And without understanding who you are, all the self-help in the world won't truly ever solve your problems or get you closer to solving your problems. I guess a big part of what you do is around helping people discover and find answers to that question. When we talk about human personality and particularly the hardwiring of their brain, is it something that we can change as individuals or is it something that we have to learn to live and work with? So I think it is useful to understand what your general disposition and makeup is because science very clearly shows that we're not all born equal. We have genetic, uh, biochemical, um, algorithms running in our minds from very, very early on. Um, we're mammals and we're programmed in certain ways. Um, and so it's very useful to understand that predisposition because you want to work with that or not against that. It doesn't work. So there are very uh, interesting studies that already show that at the age of four months you can detect dispositions in infants that are very, very reliably carried through into later life. So there is no denying that we're not all born equal. So I think we do well understanding that very foundation that we have at the deepest level of our brain that shapes us into who we are and what we're, for example, then later in life more likely to connect with, more likely to enjoy. If we discover that, I think it's a lot easier to take a shortcut and step straight into what makes us happy and straight into who we are best mm. you know, connected with. And, and all those things that often take us a lifetime to discover or we never do um, because there's a lot of things that sidetrack us from that and there's a lot of you know, influences that can distract us um, from that quest. So I think it does require a look at our nature, but then of course we have uh, a lot of agency in how we express that nature. 
And I mm. think, but we can't get around knowing that nature first, because I think then we have a choice in how we want to express it. So we talked about your personal example for, um, as one example. You've got a, a, a high care drive, right? And a high rank drive. And the care drive, and I guess we can talk about that in, in a bit more detail, makes you very nurturing, caring, really wanting to make someone else's life better and very giving uh, in nature. But it also predisposes you to seek social proof and compare and so on. So I think because I know a little bit about your story, had you not become aware of that, it would, have, it would be a lot harder to work against that undercurrent. Mm. Being aware of that, great. Now you've got the, free, the freedom to take a decision based on that, how you want to express that drive. Do you really express that drive and that need for connection by making someone's day better whilst knowing what your path is? You don't need to compare it. Or do you want to get sucked into living a preconceived life where you're trying to fit into the group to survive? It's the same primal emotion system of care uh, underneath that, but you can choose to express it in very different ways. I love that you say that because I, even hearing that again, I can completely resonate with an almost draw back to how that has been both a positive and a challenge in my life. Like the desire to, you know, we spoke about it on a recent podcast episode, this desire for likability and this desire, this want to fit in, to be loved, appreciated, to be respected by peers or the people in our lives or even sometimes the people outside of our lives. It's something that has definitely challenged me at times but I know it's that same emotion, that same primal emotion of care that makes me the human I am because I love to give love to the people in my life. I love to be empathetic. That's like it's a big part of who I am is every day I want to speak to the people I love to let them know that they're loved. And it's funny how the same emotion system can present so many positives but also challenges for people. And I guess as I was sitting there listening to you explain all of that, I think that in life, with all of the decisions we have to make to move forward, to have forward progress in life, I quite often can say for myself that when I'm faced with a challenge or a decision, I often, probably because of that care system, ring the people closest to me and ask for their opinion before Mm -hmm. I ask myself. Do you think that's a part of that care system? 100%. I can say that backed by a lot of research we've done, not just into customer behavior, because we know for a fact that people with a highly activated care system are the people that look for social proof. Mm. So even when they do something seemingly banal, like shopping for an appliance on a website, they are the people that look for the product ratings and the testimonials and the social proof to make their decision. Social proof acts like a shortcut to give you the confidence to say this is the right decision. And people with a high care activation have a much larger tendency to use that as a shortcut. Mm. People with a higher rank activation, for example, have a much higher tendency to use scarcity as a shortcut. So if something is expensive and out of reach and exclusive, they want to track that down because it symbolizes status non-consciously and that's what they're striving for. So... It's very, very useful to know those kinds of shortcuts that we apply in our decision-making. And like you said, every primal emotion system has a really important evolutionary purpose. We wouldn't have all the primal emotion systems that we have in our minds if they didn't fulfill 
a very important purpose. It is how we choose to express them or how we learn unconsciously, mostly, to express them that can be adaptive or maladaptive, can mm. be helping our happiness and well-being or detracting from it. So in the case of a high care system, absolutely oxytocin is one of the drivers behind it that makes us much more prone to look for group reassurance and approval because ultimately uh, we crave human connection and belonging. It's a survival threat if we get ostracized from the group. Oxytocin and the related brain circuitry and the high care system serves that purpose. It serves the mm. purpose to alert us to what the group wants, what the group approves, how we can fit in, how we avoid being ostracized. That's its paradigm. I have a question that's just risen to the front of my head, which feels, with my limited understanding, like maybe a, I'm not sure which way this would go or what emotion system would motivate this desire. But say for someone who, and I'm sure there's plenty of people because I've done this at stages in my life, who are listening to what we've discussed right here regarding rank and care and who are going, well, if presented with like, if let's put a hypothetical into this, it might be the best way to explain it. If you put a pair of Louis Vuitton slides in, in front of someone and then a pair of slides from a Kmart, like an affordable option, and they looked exactly the same, except one had a logo, the other didn't, would it more so in most cases be the desire for rank that would persuade someone to pick the Louis Vuitton slipper over the Kmart? Or is that a care thing because they care about social acceptance? <laughs> that is such a good question. No one's ever asked me. That is really interesting to think about. I mean, generally, luxury brands, right? That's the whole purpose of brands, creating associative concepts in our minds. The purpose of that is to signalize status and exclusivity and because to a degree we all strive for that because it is rank that allows us access, or again from an evolution perspective, that allows us access to material resources and partners in the environment. No one is free of the rank drive, just, let's mm. just be very clear of that. So to a degree, but some people much stronger than others, we have that drive active in our minds at all times. Yeah. Um, so this is, of course, what luxury brands play to. So mm. if you buy this brand, you will elevate your status and your significance because you get associated with that brand and others will go, oh, you can afford that. You must be very important. And yeah. that will increase your, your access to networks, partners, resources, jobs, whatever, you name it. Yeah, so to a degree, we've all got it. Sorry, you Sorry, go. I was just thinking, you spoke before about once you understand what primal emotion systems are most linked to your hardwiring and, and your brain that you then get the freedom and the agency to express them how you want to yeah do you think that people don't do you think that it's the see this is such a unique concept to me so i'm trying to think of the best way to ask this question do you think that for those people who feel the the desire to purchase the more high-ranked brand that then in understanding why rank is important to them, they have the agency to feel better about that decision? Or do you think there's still an element that you always kind of understand why you're doing it and you don't really sit well with it? I think you don't really know why you're doing it. I think countless studies show that we are insanely unaware of the decisions, the true drivers of our decisions, mm. right? We are really great at coming up with all sorts of reasons on why we made the decision in the first place, but the true reasons remain 
mostly unconscious to us, right? So very, very few people I would claim who are into status consumptions are aware that they're trying to elevate their rank and therefore better access partners and so on. They know this at some intuitive level, of course, um, but they wouldn't be ever able to articulate it like that. And then, of course, it's also interesting what happened, and that's maybe a bit of a sidetrack, but with that uh, status consumption, right, what happened during the pandemic where you could see, uh, actually, jumping on a Zoom call, no one sees my Armani pants and my mm. Rolex watch and my fancy car. And I feel like there's, it's still, the jury is still out on that social experiment of the pandemic, but I think it's super interesting what a decreased visibility of those status cues did to the status consumption. A lot of people went, actually, maybe that doesn't make me happy. Maybe I stop working so hard to chase all those status symbols and rather downsize into the country, into a smaller house and have more quality time with my family, you know? So yeah. this is a totally different topic, but it's interesting if that kind of status consumption doesn't get rewarded in a social environment because no one even sees it, it becomes worthless. Yeah, I get what you mean. I actually heard, um, there's a gent that I've been listening to a lot lately, Chris Williamson, I was telling you about his podcast just before, and I heard him on an old Rogan episode from about a year ago, and I'll probably butcher this, but essentially what they were talking about is if you gave most people the things that they think they desire, like the big fancy home, the beautiful car, they would realise that it is less meaningful than they thought it would be. Yeah. But they were saying, is it the difficulty in which, is it the difficulty in achieving those things or being able to accumulate those things of status that makes them more attractive to people? And I think it probably is. The fact that you think you have to work either extremely hard or maybe it might be impossible to achieve or accumulate those materials, is that what potentially makes it attractive to people? Because... Um how often do you have to read? We spoke about this again before too. How many books do you have to read and how many people who have had everything they've ever wanted do you have to listen to tell you that that stuff doesn't actually make you feel any happier or any better about who you are or the life you're living yeah. before you realise that for yourself? Most people don't realise it and most people don't process that advice. Yeah. They have to achieve it for themselves to understand what that person was trying to tell them. Yeah. And even, you know, when people win the lottery and they always thought that's got to be the ultimate game changer for their happiness and their mm. fulfillment, they actually become more depressed after a while. They get a spike in happiness, yes, mm. but then a year later, often they're poorer and more miserable um, than they've ever been. So, I mean, that's where very well known from happiness research that money only makes us happier to a certain point that's actually not a very high level of income. I think it used to be 80. It's about 100 now, is it? It's, I'm sure now it must be 100, 120, or in Sydney probably 500,000 <laughs> K to meet your basic needs. No, that sounds wrong. But, um, you know, there's a certain level that is uh, rather uh, normal income um, mm. that where you can see the happiness still increases, but then any additional income doesn't make a significant difference to your uh, increased happiness. It's That's very well known, but yet, as you say, people don't believe it until they get into that position and it actually doesn't change anything. For sure, and I've been there. I've been in a job that offered incredible financial reward, 
and offered a huge future financially for me. And I looked around me and I'm so glad that I was able to see it and I was able to feel it too because mm. I was mentally not in a good place and extremely challenged by the position I was in. But as I looked around and looked at everybody who had more than I did, I, I had this realisation at one point and I don't know what inspired it. Maybe it was just where I was in my feeling and thought process at the time, but I looked around and thought, none of these people are actually that happy. Yeah. And I'm so glad I was able to see it early because it allowed me to make decisions and actually start to ask myself really quality questions about who am I and what actually makes me tick. Yeah. And I kind of want to head back in that direction. Can I just say something? Yeah. Because I feel like I haven't fully answered your question before. It absolutely is a high rank drive and this goes out to high rank people that can um, actually uh, identify that in themselves. This is something that a high rank drive uh, enables or, or causes um, because people with a high rank have plenty of testosterone to chase goals. And, but they also want to set ambitious goals because the mere chasing them, hunting the goal, does have some sense of purpose for them or has, has gets them some, some sense of satisfaction, right? So people with a high rank drive are a lot likelier to keep chasing forever the next goal and the next goal and the next goal. And like you said, a lot of them get stuck in this forever chasing. And of course you never get there because there's always someone with a bigger house. There's always someone with a newer car. It just doesn't, where does it lead? It never ends. There will always be someone with a bigger super yacht when you finally land in, you know, yeah. Cannes and, you know, then there's the next Russian billionaire with a bigger yacht. So mm. it doesn't actually ever get you to the goal, but the mere chasing is something that's a little bit wired into the high rank kind of psychology. Mm. Um, and the trick is, and I think that's where you've benefited usually from your high care drive as well, um, to stop and think, you know, and, and feel into it and feel into the satisfaction you can, for example, uh, get from human connection and giving to the people you love and, and all of that, because you've got that very, very strong drive. A lot of high rank people don't have that. It's actually a rare combination to combine high care and high rank. A lot of high rank people are much more one-dimensional and for them it's a lot easier, uh, a lot harder to get out of that treadmill. Um, and most of the time it only changes when they have a midlife crisis or a heart attack or a divorce that they get to question that. Yeah, it's, it's so important that we talk about this because I recognise, and this is something that we connected on in our conversation of humankind, I recognise the incredible gift that my cystic fibrosis has been mm -hmm. because it's allowed me to learn that lesson very early. Like when, you know, we spoke about me being 18 and rushing to emergency with bleeding lungs, thinking I was dying. And in that moment, you ask yourself some very serious questions about the human being you are and the life that you're living. And I'm so blessed to have had those experiences and to now have some of those answers to the questions mm -hmm. I ask myself. So when we talk about understanding and better understanding who you are as a human being, who you truly are, if you are the most authentic version of yourself. And, you know, when we ask that question and we then get to understand our hardwiring, our brain, its chemistry, it obviously then makes us aware of things like whether we are high rank and if we truly care about our rank, then I guess what comes with it is this boost where we don't beat ourselves up about 
wanting the Louis Vuitton bag or the Louis Vuitton suit because that same system is what makes you so determined mm-hmm. and successful in your work. So it kind of, even if there are negative traits, and correct me if I'm wrong here, but even if there's a negative trait associated with that high rank system, you can feel better about that decision yep. because you know that this system is actually supporting you in achieving the big life goals that you have. Would that be it, correct? And it goes back to what we just said before. It's really important to remember that no system carries a bad uh, disposition with it. It's only the way it's um, we choose to express it, right? Because every single system mm. evolved for a great reason. The high rank system, like you say, gives us plenty of drive to make things happen. And we do need to make things happen in this world and shape it, right? And there's so many great things you can make happen that add a huge amount of value to you know people and planet and so the ranked system absolutely has a crucial place without it humanity would be nowhere the same goes for the care system without it humanity would be nowhere no one would care for offspring taking off that hard uh, taking on that hard work no one would actually um, um, look um, after a sense of cohesion and bonding in the group with it which is essential for the survival of our species so this is a, something very, very important to remember when we talk about personality. There are no better or worse traits. There is no judgment around them. They are all highly um, crucial and adaptive you know, for humankind to have evolved to the point where we are. But now the responsibility is then on knowing what they are and choosing to express them in their hopefully most constructive ways. So let's talk about that, knowing what they are. What are the primary emotion systems of um, the human personality? Yeah. So there's um, research going back to one of the pioneers, Jacques Panksepp, who um, used deep brain stimulation to actually study those brain circuits that are associated with primal emotion systems. Uh, Interestingly, those primal emotion systems exist in all mammals, not just humans, because they help all mammals thrive and survive. So that's something important to remember. And so there are a couple of different ways to look at those primal emotion systems or to sum them up. I sum them up into five. Um, So the first one is care. We spoke about that a little bit. The second one is play. So a sense of play, rough and tumble play. You can see that in the wild. You can see that in toddlers. You can see that in boardrooms in a different way. You can also see rough and tumble play when there's banter and joking going on, right? Um, So that's the play system that makes us curious, creative, playful, you know, forming social bonds, testing limits. And then we've got the seek system. The seek system evolved to make us explore for new territories, both in the realm of the physical world and in the realm of ideas, um, because that helps us, of course, push the boundaries and innovate. And then we've got the rank system, which we talked about, which is all about um, power, dominance, submission structures, regulating conflict in groups from an evolution perspective, um, and regulating access to material resources. And then finally, we've got what I, what I sum up as the guard drive. So that's actually a opposing force that is a more conservative, preserving drive that's designed to keep us alive. So it mm. includes things like disgust, um, anger, and sadness, you know, all designed to either um, withdraw from danger in the environment or go into attack to defend our territory or detect poisonous foods and spit them out to help us survive. So there's a couple of things in that guard system. So when we talk about those five primal emotion systems, 
what is like through all of the research you've done and all of the work you've done over years and years of understanding these concepts and seeing them play out in people's narratives what is the the main barriers to people living the most fruitful life they can or, or even just better understanding themselves of those primal emotion systems which emotions are the ones that are really truly hard for people to come to terms with and move forward in the knowledge of the fact that they are made up that way we've got we've asked many questions in one so i'm gonna start at some point and then you 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 prompt me uh, to the others please okay um so no hang on <laughs> i've actually I'll, gotten lost in there no, I'll, I'll ask that again because yeah, that I'll was a deep again. question yeah it was a really deep question i can imagine that you you consistently hear people and come across people in whether it be your research or your work mm. who are struggling with the narrative of their life story, who are yeah. struggling to move forward and better understand who they are. What do you think is the main barrier to them answering that question of who am I and how okay. do I move forward? Let me answer that first. That was my intention. Yeah. So um, it is simply because of how our brains are built. And then secondly, of the world we designed around us, mm. right? So um, if we talk about the world we designed around us, we're more distracted, more fast moving than we've ever been. Um, we're continuously connected to our phones. So in essence, we've designed a world where we never ever have to be alone with our own thoughts, which is absolutely detrimental to introspection and self-reflection. Um, because if we don't want to, we can always distract ourselves. We never really have to think about who we are and why we behave the way we do, right? So that's the number one. I think the environment we've built makes it increasingly hard for us to be um, yeah, introspective and gain self-knowledge. And secondly, and that is a, uh, an, a tricky thing about the human brain itself, it is not designed for self-knowledge and insight. In fact, the contemporary philosopher Alain de Botton calls our brain faulty walnuts, like, like subtly but dangerously flawed machines, he calls them, um, that are flawed in ways that don't announce themselves to us, meaning mm we are not even unaware of how they function and how unaware we are of our emotional processes. <laughs> we are designed, they are designed actually to help us survive in the savannas, right? They mm. are brilliant at that, but they're not designed for us to gain greater self-knowledge. Most of what's happening in our mind be, remains be, be, uh, below the radar of our consciousness. And so by the very design of our mind, it is incredibly hard to know who we are what our emotions are, how they drive our behaviors. We know our feelings, but that's like a lot more conscious. But our emotions, those hardwired emotion drives, we are not aware of. And so I think that's been one of my missions to make that explicit and hand that into people's hands to be able to discover it. It's, it's so fascinating to me because it, you know, it's something we spoke about. The world is so busy and I think I often ask people whether they understand or, or have any connection to purpose. Mm. And I think for a lot of people, they are so overwhelmed by the workload that they have, the fact that maybe they have to go home and be a good parent, maybe mm. they have to go home and be a good partner, maybe they're in a position where they're trying to push to achieve their goals and things aren't going to plan and they're scattered trying to find answers to the questions they don't seem to have, that they are so distracted they don't have time to truly understand whether they're actually moving in the right direction or not. 
or how to actually take the next step. I think people are plagued by the worry that is this next step the right step to the point where they actually just don't move at all. Yeah. They just stay in the same place. What, what have you understood, like with all of the, the knowledge you have in this subject and area, what is the one thing that you would encourage people to understand to continue to research and learn about that would have the most positive effect on anyone who resonates with or associates with that feeling of being stuck in their struggles right now? Take a first principles approach. Understand who you are at the very core. Don't look at all the self-help literature of people recommending X, Y, Z strategy um, to fix your problems. Just go inside. And you don't actually need guided tools to do that, but you need to have the curiosity and the courage um, to look inside and take the time as well because the answers don't necessarily come readily. Um, or take you know use the tools that are available to do it but my recommendation would really be to discover your true self first and then build from there because the things that might work for you and that might matter for you and that give you purpose are not the things that someone else uh, that apply to someone else's life so I can't emphasize that enough because in the absence of that you're trying to adopt someone else's strategies that have probably worked for them but are unlikely to work for you do you think that's a major issue like i see a lot of people who want to be like someone they aspire to be like that's you know we spoke about it and i know you listened to the episode on the way in this morning we spoke about upward comparison mm -hmm. and if somebody is looking up to someone they admire and going oh, i want to be more like that person if they then go and pursue that path and get to a point in which they are actually very similar to that person in terms of their status, their rank, um, their position in life and their understanding, but then realise that that doesn't serve them. Yeah. Do you think that discourages people from trying to then figure out who they are again and they just feel so attached to that path? Because you hear it and I think that's what the midlife crisis seems to be related to is it's somebody who has gone on a life path that they thought was the right move or they felt as though they had no other option but to go in that direction, they then get to a point in which they're married with the children and you know at a senior position in their job, but they realise they're completely unhappy and they're troubled by this fact that, well, I either flip everything on its head or I live like this for the rest of my life. This is why I think it's so important to try and discover these things when you're young before you make a lot of consequential and irreversible decisions. It's never too late, but of course it comes at huge emotional, mental, financial costs, you know, or at the cost of others. So I think do it as young as you can, yeah. <laughs> like yourself. I think that's such a great example. Um, but do it. There is no way around it, I think. Well, you know, I so the other day I was dwelling on this concept of well, this quote that I'd heard, and it was actually from Chris Williamson again, he's just been providing some gems at the moment, where he said, you either give up or you win. And it made me think about my life in the last mm. three years in particular. Like I left a, a good paying job with plenty of potential to pursue what felt like purpose and passion and has now been deemed to be purpose and passion because of the joy I get from it. But it's not been a linear path to mm. getting here. Like it's been 
ups and downs. It was me getting to a point where I was broke, having to sell my home, mm. then getting a boost because the financial or the housing market during COVID was amazing. So I got this boost of finances and I was like, all right, perfect. I can now pursue my dream and I've got this money to fall back on. And the great thing is that I'll most likely achieve some success and financial sustainability before this money runs out. Well, that hasn't quite happened yet. <laughs> and so I'm in this point three years later where there are still challenges I have to face and there are still daily problems that I need to solve. Yeah. However, I'm very certain that I know who I am. So that's the thing, right? I think you started out like everybody else and that's the function of social comparison um, using a template that's been mm. provided by society that says, yeah, do this. Uh, if you don't have any idea what you really want to do or who you are, just do this because this kind of works for most people. It doesn't really work for most people, but this is what most people do. So it's kind of a safe way. So I think yeah. that's what a lot of us do. We try and look for those role models and look for those templates in absence of knowing who we are and what we should do. It's like a proxy, but the thing with these proxies is they don't work. And the thing is, if the more broken the kind of role models are in a society, the more miserable they will make us. And I would actually argue that a lot of our role models, whether that's Silicon Valley, um, tech entrepreneurs with zero self-awareness but massive ambitions to use that technology mm. um, or whether that's politicians it doesn't matter where you look a lot of our role models are highly flawed and a lot of people that are highly celebrated probably don't have much to give in in, in the in the way of human well-being and happiness mm. and so i think this is so good to discard of those models and that goes back to your question before the need to compare and to use those templates falls away altogether if you know what you, who you are and what your path is. Yeah. So, and this is what the power of it really is. Comparison doesn't apply to you if you know who you are because there's only one you mm. um, and, and to your path. And, um, and so in a way, I think I did listen to that conversation and enjoyed it. It makes us immune, I think, to social comparison. On the flip side, though, there's a function of social comparison, right? How do we fit in? How does this whole thing work? And I think actually we can channel the kind of envy that sometimes people might feel with looking at what someone else has achieved, channel that and think, what is it exactly that I would want to get out of this? I think this is an interesting reflection exercise, you know, to think, what is it when I look at someone where I think, this is how I would like to be, or this is how I would like to live. What exactly is it about them? Yeah. What, what is the ingredient that they've got that you can channel in your own life? Because these, these emotions do tell us some things about, you know, what uplifts us potentially, what inspires us, what we should pursue. But I, not as a template, more I as a... love what you're saying here. This feels so important because I remember I had a great conversation with a man that I've referenced a whole lot in sort of past podcasts. It was probably about a year ago I met... Actually, it was a year ago because it was near my birthday a year ago I met um, Rich Davini retired Navy, Navy SEAL mm -hmm. he wrote a book called The Attributes and I sat with Rich and we had a conversation around the attributes that make up who we are as human beings and Rich had this just profound moment in the pod where he absolutely served me the advice that I needed to hear like he just gave me a very real, honest, straight answer about the challenges that I explained I was facing at that point in time, which thankfully aren't challenges anymore. 
And one thing he said to me that's really struck a chord and it sticks with me. He said, Brad, the quality of our lives is directly proportionate to the quality of the questions we ask ourselves. And I loved that. Mm -hmm. And I don't think that we are asking ourselves enough quality questions about why we are making the decisions we're making. Yeah. We make them because we've compared and think we have to. And I think you hit the nail on the head there, Kat, where you said, when you look at that and you feel that envy, ask yourself, why would I want that? And I feel like that's such great advice for anyone listening to that. And I still have to do a better job of asking myself those questions. Why do I have that? Why do I think I need that? Mm -hmm. And I think in that question, you find answers and maybe you can then, like you said, be um, immune to feeling that sense of comparison or that need to compare. Now, I want to go back and backtrack just a little bit to something you spoke about with our role models. And you spoke about our role models from a societal standpoint, um, the people we look to who are deemed to be quote unquote successful. I think this generation, and I'm immune to this because I have very, very um, supportive parents and supportive people in my life. But I know for certain, I actually listened to a podcast on the way up here today, Alex Hormozy, um, who's an extremely successful guy in the business world, who was speaking about the decision he made to go and pursue what felt like passion, purpose to him, was at the complete disagreement of his father, who thought he should have stayed the path that he was on. He was essentially living his dad's dream. And he said, I had to get very comfortable with the fact that I was going to disappoint a man that I loved to be happy and have good quality mental health. I know that so many people who are tuning in right now mm -hmm. would feel a sense of discomfort with the idea that if they want to truly go and pursue the path that feels authentic to them, they're going to dis disappoint a bunch of people around them in the process. Do you think that it's hard for the generation before us to truly understand the options that we have because they never had those options? And no doubt that is very hard. We live in a super different world than back then, right? So I think, but that's true for every generation and their preceding generation, I mm. feel. Um, but being a parent myself, I know that every single parent at the heart wants their child to be happy. I don't think there's any single parent out there. And with the huge investment you have to ma make to even bring up children to the point where they can be self-sustained, you know, you want them to be happy and well. And so I think using this insight, not just on us, we can also turn it back to our parents and use it on them. Why is it that they want me to pursue this? What really drives their desire for that? You know, like think about that, like no parent, you need to assume your parent wants you to be well and happy. Mm. This is just, they're just trying to impose the best way they know to be happy on you or the template that, they know has worked for them on you. So I think what we also need to use this for is greater compassion and insight into others, not just self, right? And I think with that, think about what is it that your parent wants for you? Of course, they want you to be happy, but the strategies they have learned might not apply to you, but maybe you can have that conversation with them. And then I think you're connecting on a profoundly human and personal level where they will probably be able to share some stuff you've never known about them and you'll be able to share with them why you're pursuing it this way, going about being happy and fulfilling your needs. 
It's funny you say this because in that same conversation I listened to this morning, um, there was a quote that was dropped that hits the nail on the head of exactly what you just said there. You can't hate and understand someone at the same time. No way, yeah. And it just comes back to those questions. So when we track back and stay in line with the idea of questioning and the quality of questions we ask ourselves, what questions do you think would serve someone well in understanding who they are? Like if there was one question you could encourage someone to ask themselves, because I think for most people, and I know at times where I felt lost in my life, if someone said to me, ask yourself, who am I? I'd go, fuck, where do I well, start with that? Where do you start? Exactly. Yeah. So what would be a more appropriate question to start that journey? This is very, very tricky, right? Because it goes to the very heart of who are you or who are Mm. we? What makes up the different layers of ourselves? And like we said before, it is very, very hard to get a glimpse into that unless you've got some sort of training um, to guide you through that. So I think one thing, though, I... I often say to people is what what is the one thing you you feel like you couldn't live without Mm. do you know that goes into your values but that also goes into your your needs you know your most dear needs that you're holding what is the one thing if you had to decide uh, you were stranded on an island let's say you know and for the rest of your life you would have to live with this one thing what would that be or lack thereof sometimes thinking about the lack of something um, can help you get the, that inside so for me for example personally I and it's always been like that I could not live without a sense of discovery and autonomy Do you know mm. if that was taken away from me no security in the world would ever make me happy but for other people it's the opposite some people couldn't live without a sense of security and continuity. That's the most important thing. Yeah. It's, it's so interesting because I'm thinking about what that answer would be for me. Mm. And for me, it's, it's so, like the answer is so clearly just the love of the people I have around me. And interestingly, this goes to the very heart of your most active primal emotion system. And when you take that guided process, that's exactly what you find you are made up of all of those different driving forces in your brain. Mm. But the one that's most active decides what you ultimately, if you had to make a choice, couldn't live without. It also decides what you default to when you're under massive stress and pressure. Mm. It's the one most defining thing. So, but it is, I realize it is hard for people to ask that question and, and systematically cover all the different answers they could come up with. Um, yeah. Do you think in discovering the answer of who am I, or even you could relate this to setting goals for ourselves as human beings to creating or crafting a purpose for your life, do you think that we have made the mistake in society right now of trying to be too profound with that? Do you think it's simpler than, well, my goal, dream, purpose, who I am at the core is to be this extraordinary human being who does all of these amazing things which can still be possible but you think we've set our desires and hopes so high that we will never truly that is is it just too far away is it too complicated because the more i think about it and just (laughs) sitting and mulling on all of this now i have huge goals plans dreams for my life 
I'm such a dreamer. I talk about it every day where I can see myself going. Like I'm, it's having that end goal in mind of where I want my life to be and how I want it to look. But at the core, I know for sure and certain that if I don't have the people around me that I love, if I don't have the simplicity of my health so that I can go for a run every day, yeah. if I don't get my oat flat white in the morning oh, we're so that I can like, enjoy. We're so alike in the morning. <laughs> yeah, so alike. Run, caffeine. Run, caffeine, me being in the ocean. Dopamine like, is the other way to express that. For sure. <laughs> if I don't have those things, the extremity of what I can achieve does not matter at all. Yeah. I know that for certain because I've felt the highs of achieving amazing goals or being in line to make great money and it meant nothing if those other things weren't in check. So I'll reframe that question because I've gone on a tangent. Are we thinking too profoundly about who we are at the core and should we simplify it? I think we're not thinking profoundly enough. We're thinking too superficially looking at other role models out there. Again, that brings us back to that. Mm. Because if we think about it profoundly, we think about our wiring. We think about our primal emotion makeup. Because I could tell you after, under the 10 minutes of doing the assessment with you, as you know, that love and connection will, no matter what, make you the happiest. This will matter to you the most. Mm. You know? And so I think when we talk about profound, it is the, at the profoundest level of our brain that holds the clues. And I think what has then happened is that with social media and podcasts and everything we're surrounded with, which is phenomenal, you know, we can access any kind of amazing idea around mm. the world so uh, easily now. But at the same time, it, it's brought everyone closer to us. So it looks like everyone is extraordinary. Everyone is successful. Everyone has done something remarkable because we're, all of those people are so accessible to us by way of For the sure. internet. So I think that raises the kind of benchmark to an unrealistic level mm. and at the same time that's coupled with a kind of society and philosophy western society anyway western culture and philosophy where we're highly individualized and individualistic and we believe that our destiny lies in our own hands we don't think that any external circumstances shape who we are we don't think that you know, there's like bad fate and, you know, upbringing, for example, limits us. We are, and to a degree, this is true, you know, we can with extreme willpower and creativity and whatever, um, overcome certain likely outcomes. But at the same time, I think it's extremely unhelpful to think that everyone can and must become extraordinary to be happy. Firstly, it actually doesn't help happiness that much. I think it's overrated. Mm. Uh, but secondly, it's statistically not possible. Uh, yeah, I love that. You've just schooled me and given me such a great lesson there that I just want to touch on again. The way that you said we're not thinking profoundly enough, we're thinking too superficially, and its authenticity is as profound as you'll ever need to be, right? Mm. Just understanding mm. who you are. And I think that's such a great lesson because it is so easy to get caught in the trap of what we're not based on social media. And I'll even say that over the last two months, I've had some incredible things happen in my life. Some incredible opportunities from speaking at the Humankind event and meeting all of you wonderful people who were there to you know being invited to Spotify HQ. I was on an SBS program. I was on some ABC stuff. There's been all these exciting opportunities. 
and I've bumped into a few people that I know back home in Wollongong and they've gone far out it looks like things are really starting to happen for you you must be rolling in the coin now and I'm like I didn't get paid for any of that mm-hmm. it was all opportunity to move me in the right direction but they were they had they were under an impression that success the success of those things was incredibly fruitful in the financial space for me just because they'd seen a photo on Instagram yeah. Yeah. And we are so confused by what we're seeing and we're processing it as we're processing it, th- processing it through probably what we desire deep down and thinking, oh, those people have that. It's that comparison model again. But I think we just have to stop and understand that that social world isn't real life. Mm-hmm. And a lot of the time it's just the highlight moments of people's journeys, the highlight moments of their week. It is not at the crux of who they are and it definitely, in a lot of cases, does not express the challenges that they have. No, that's very true. You know, I heard this, um, a gentleman by the name of Inky Johnson, um, motivational speaker, I'm not sure what his background is, but I see him pop up a lot and he speaks about his grandmother. His grandmother gave him this incredible piece of advice. She said, don't wish for what others have when you don't know what they've done to get it. When you don't know what someone's been through, the adversity they face, the challenges in their life, the struggle and the hardship, do not wish for what they have because you don't know what they had to do to get it. And he said that, you know, we often look at people and go, well, I wish I had the money that they have. But if you want to compare yourself to someone, if you want to be like someone, if you want to wish for everything that they have, it's not like just taking an item of clothing from them. You don't get, get to go, yeah. oh, I'll put on the jacket of financial yeah. success that they have. It's a onesie. <laughs> if you want their financial success, you get their stress too. Yeah, you get their continuous 24-7 mental tr- destruction and absorption. You get the poor quality of their relationships as a result mm. of never being present-minded. Just for two examples, right? I think this is so true what you're saying. I want to ask you a question, Kat. You know, we've spoken about understanding who you are. I know that you have a good group of that too. And, you know, you're doing amazing things in your life. But I'm not silly enough to think that you're without your challenges. What have been the probably the one or two biggest challenges for you in the course of your life that you've had to navigate that this work, this understanding of who you are, has had the most profound effect on helping you solve those problems and understand them? This is such an interesting question. I think... Because of my innate makeup, now I've got to say it, of course. Yes. <laughs> high seek, high play. I love having a challenge. So my whole life, I actually sought out challenge, you know, whether that was career-wise or moving after studying from Germany to Australia with even ha- without even having sorted out a place to live beforehand. Like, I love throwing myself into situations that are extreme and challenging because I know I always land on my feet and I can work it out and I actually love that. I love that being on the on the bleeding edge of stuff sometimes. Mm. Makes me feel alive. Um, and I think the biggest challenge I had with that um, was becoming a parent. Um, because beforehand, you know, you go to your 6 a.m. yoga class and you spend one and a half hours uh, at 40 degrees in an extreme pose and they say if you can breathe through this, you know, you're independent of what's the external circumstance and you celebrate yourself and then you go on and go into your day and do whatever else. 
you have no idea what challenge and pressure is until you are the parent of an, of, of an infant, you know, yeah. where suddenly the challenges you're being thrown are not the challenges you picked conveniently, mm. but they are things you've never even thought about were things, you know. And suddenly someone else is running the show and directing your day-to-day -day life. And for me personally, going back to our unique makeup and how that brings about unique challenges, for everyone out there who is high-seek, you have a strong desire for autonomy and urgency and speed. This is not possible with a young child. You know, that's the one thing you cannot have. And that's the one challenge you will not pick deliberately. And I remember I had you know, my daughter quite late in life, let's say, um, in my, in my um, th being 36, um, because I knew this would be the most challenging thing for me ever to have someone so depending on me that I can, that I need to give up all of my autonomy for a little while until they're big enough. Um, and, but I made that decision quite deliberately because I was tossing and turning like I've got such a great life and I get to travel the world and work in the field I absolutely love working with, got a great relationship and all the rest of it. Um, and you could keep doing that for another decade or another two or three decades um, and you've become ever more optimized in your way of living. But really, I, is that really challenging yourself? I'm like, actually, I think to really challenge yourself, you've got to raise a little child. And uh, that is not something that comes to me naturally. It wasn't something I felt like I'm born to do, really, if I'm honest. Um, yeah. But I went and did it because I thought and we need to be jolted out of our highly optimized individual lives, you know, kind of thing. And so that is my honest answer. That for me was and remains to be the biggest challenge, but also the most rewarding and amazing thing. I've got no regrets ever. Um, about but it remains a challenge i love that we're having this conversation because as we were just talking about that I, I wondered and you answered my question for me whether in understanding having a deep understanding of who you were whether you had any challenge or any difficulty in making the decision to have a child because you knew that it would potentially change some of the things that worked for you in your life do you think that I did, and it was very deliberate, yeah. Yeah, I love how deliberate it was for you, and I love how you were able to reframe that desire for challenge into, well, this is a new challenge that will lay ahead, that will test me in new ways. Do you think that people, in understanding who they are, what they desire, what they want, do you think we're sometimes opposed to making choices, decisions in life that will be challenging and potentially push us off our path to better understanding what may be the things that we need to pursue yeah i mean this is a perfect example right choosing mm. the challenges that i can handle yeah i can say all day long i love challenges but if i get to choose them i'm kind of in control a real challenge is if you're not in control yeah so yeah i love it it's it's so important here and i think Everyone who listens, like the majority of people who listen to this podcast are between 20 and 34. And I think at mm -hmm. those ages, you have so many big decisions to make. Yeah. Whether it's the career that you pursue, whether it's the partner that 
um, looks to be the right person to start to create a life with, but there's always uncertainty, yeah. whether it's to have children or to not have children. Yeah. I think in understanding who you are, it's becoming more and more clear as this conversation rolls through that you have a better chance of making the right decisions for you and then accepting the challenges that come with those decisions. Because I think it would be naive of people to think that every decision, no matter how closely it's linked to you being aligned with who you are as a, as a person, means that it will come without challenges. No. That would be so false to expect, yes. right? Yes. And I think we said, you know, when we had our conversation at Humankind, that all of the fears that come with the unknown can't stop people from moving forward. It's important to understand that fear plays an important part in our lives, but we have to have that thing that you discussed before, the courage to make tough decisions. Yeah. And the courage to be wrong at times. Yes, and for some people that's easier because of, again, their innate makeup. They are more comfortable, you know, making uh, mistakes and trying out things and correcting their course. And some people just need a greater sense of certainty and continuity and they find it a lot harder to get out of their comfort zone. And if they're happy and fulfilled, that's great. But if you feel like you're not where you want to be or if you're feeling unfulfilled or you feel like you live only a small part of yourself, then it is a good idea to push that comfort zone, get out of it and see, see what happens because that's a great way of getting to know yourself. And I think that's probably behind seeking challenges really for me is it's in challenge and under pressure that you really get to know yourself. So your little one's two and a half now, mm. right? Has there been any indication to you that who you are at the core, at the hardwiring of your brain, has somewhat changed because of the new mm -hmm. environment that you're in? Mm -hmm. It's such an amazing question because I used to always say there's only a number of things that really change your personality your, in, as in your neurochemistry dramatically for a longer period of time and that's childbirth and trauma mm. <laughs> are, are two of them. And, but then we see that people after a while return to their base levels. Um, after a year or two in general right and that okay. and that's true and I've so I've gone on this strange neurochemical experiment myself now to see whether it is actually true what I've been saying and reading uh, in the science and I can absolutely confirm that um, I think that my brain uh, wasn't prepared for the levels of oxytocin and estrogen and, and all the things that come with, you know, childbirth. Um, and at times I felt like I'm almost allergic to it. Mm. <laughs> I could see my, my, you know, my like things clashing. I'm like, no, I just, this nurturing and this is really challenging for me. Um, and those feelings of being protective or being vigilant because the survival of a child depends on you and that greater level of anxiety which I've never experienced in my life before and seems so alien to me that for the first year I sometimes felt like I've got a personality transplant although I was still me at the core you know I had all of those other emotions and and thoughts that were very very foreign to me so I think the degree to which that influences your personal experience and decision making uh, I probably underestimated until I experienced it myself um, but then also very interesting as I uh, as I could perceive after one and a half years and you get back into more of your normal life and routines you know for me like for yourself 
morning runs are essential. I can't function. I need three espresso shots and a long morning run on North Head. Otherwise, I don't feel like myself. And so returning to those routines. So we're, we're talking about a number of things that are overlapping now, right? The life you lead mm. and the conscious design as well as your neurochemistry, which is more permanent. But they interact, of course. We can't separate them. Um, so as I found myself returning to who I was more before, from a hormonal and neurochemical level, but also from a life habit level, right? Doing all of those things I love doing as well. I felt like I'm becoming more and more myself again. So it was really funny. It was like it's almost an out-of-body experience. Like I'm in someone else's brain part-time. Whoa, this is scary, you know? Yeah. And now I'm becoming more and more. I can feel more and more myself as I know myself my whole life. This is so fascinating. We're coming up to sort of that point in the podcast where we're ready to conclude, but I do want to ask you two more questions before we go. You touched just there on routine, how important routine to you is, particularly in the morning. I know it is for me too. I often hear people say to me, and it tends to be younger people that I speak to, who say, oh, I don't like a routine. I like the spontaneity of something different every day. I question whether that is and I, I don't know, I'm, I'm open to your thoughts here, whether that is correct, depending on how you are hardwired, or do you think that we all benefit from routine in some way? Yeah, I think that's a brilliant point, and I think that novelty-seeking and that element of surprise, I completely thrive on too, so I can really connect to that. Um, um, because for me, routine and predictability is also not something I strive for in my life. So I can completely empathize with that. And as our dopamine levels are higher in earlier life, then that novelty seeking is higher. So it's completely predictable that in your 20s, for example, you much more strive for novelty and surprise and kind mm. of no routine than routine for a lot of people, depending on the personality, of course. But that doesn't preclude you from having a routine that gets you into your best possible state. So okay. when I say routine, I'm not saying repeat the same behaviors, eat in the same restaurants, do the same kind of things all day long, every day. I, I would die. I couldn't do that either. But get to know the things that put you into a peak state. And those things tend to be the things, you know, that encourage dopamine in the early part of the day. So... You know, there's a lot of science around that now, but some of those things can be caffeine, can be exercise, you know, because they all boost your dopamine levels, can be uh, cold immersion, ice baths, can have to be viewing sunlight, you know. So when I say routine, these are things that are very well known to boost happiness and well-being, you know, and that sets you up for your day. Mm. Sure, you can experiment with different things all the time but over time you tend to find the things that work for you I guess yeah it's so interesting because I feel so conflicted by that I guess one thing and I think my my levels of seek when we done my assessment were not super high yeah super it was the, the least activated drive, least in activated your brain, drive. Yes. because there are parts of me and I talk to my partner Soph about this all the time with the career path that I'm going down there is hopefully a future that looks, especially for a couple of years before we decide to have kids, there is a future, and Soph would be thinking, hopefully it's not a couple of years until we have kids. Um, you know, in the next three years, we're thinking about starting a family. Mm -hmm. So as we talk about that, I'm like, well, the next three years is 
the opportunity to have a lot of different experience mm -hmm. in terms of if my work can take us to this city in the US for a couple of weeks and then take us to the UK and then bring us back to Sydney or to Melbourne or to Brisbane and we get to do little bits of time in all these different cities so that I can work and you know earn some great money doing what I love mm -hmm. and start to set up the life that we want to live that excites the hell out of me but it doesn't excite me if it comes at the cost of being able to wake up go for a run have a coffee I love to be able to jump into the ocean if I have that leisure or just at least an icy cold shower in the morning. Yeah. So there's those things that are those dopamine um, inducing routines or behaviors, habits, yeah. whatever you want to call them, that are super important to me. But I do know that anytime I go on a trip or anytime I have that level of seek, it's such a blessing to come home to my same bed and my life in Wollongong a little bit. So I feel a little bit conflicted by those ideas and things and it's I guess <laughs> welcome it's, to human mental yeah. life right we are <laughs> complex we have a ton of conflicting needs mm. and emotions and tugging forces inside yeah. of our minds absolutely yes and I think it's for me it's probably present that I won't truly know what feels better until I go and experience that lifestyle because I think in theory you can overthink it right I think it's a fantastic idea. I don't think anyone has ever regretted venturing out into the world and having different experiences. And the great thing is, you know, you can combine your, um, your, your seek drive to be in new places and experience them with your need for a routine that, you know, puts you into a big peak state because I love waking up in a new place and going for a morning run and trying their coffee mm. bars. There's no problem yeah. with <laughs> extrapolating yeah. that routine into there. I like that. I want to say thank you so much for coming on the show. I'm going to make sure that everywhere people can find you, which isn't a lot on social media, it is on LinkedIn where we've been connecting. I guard my attention span very carefully. I, I, I like <laughs> it. I wish I could take a leaf from your book. I'm going to make sure that you've been so kind to offer the deep sphere assessment to people who listen to the show for 72 hours for free. So yes. if you're listening to this and you're super interested, which you should be, and I know I'm even interested to get the people in my life to do the assessment, for 72 hours, everyone will have access to it for free via my link. Please make sure you capitalize on that. And I'm going to be selling the absolute shit out of that on social media to make sure that you're all here listening to this episode within the first 72 hours of its release. So to go back to your question, how can people get that understanding? This is what we want to offer right to mm. help people get that understanding i didn't feel it was fair to not have a proper answer but there's your answer we put it in a link i love it i love it <laughs> kat thank you but before you go i'm going to give you one last opportunity just to share a message that you feel is important and that you'd encourage everyone tuning into today's show to act on wow i wasn't prepared for that let me have it's one of those deep end questions. I like to throw the guests in the deep end and to see what they have to say. And you've shared so many beautiful messages already, so there will be many. I think but it, if you could reinforce one. Yeah, I think it would be a summary of what we spoke about. I think life is short for people like yourself. And I had a, a near-death experience myself as well. You just realize how short your time is and you cannot waste it on anything that's not true to your purpose you know and to who you are and what makes you happy so yeah my message would just be find that out and then be true to it uh, 
but of course keep exploring it because it's complex. It's not like there's a simple answer. It's a puzzle to explore it uh, and experiment with it. But yeah, that would be my absolute call to action. Then a lot of things fall away, you know, like comparison, envy, living to templates that don't work for you. I love it. Well, that exploration of, is what makes life fun. So thank you so much for being here. This is fascinating to me and I could talk to you for hours and hours on end because this stuff is so new to me. Like the concepts in, in their own ways, in their, mm. I guess, real life forms aren't new. We all experience these things on a daily basis, on a weekly basis as human beings living on earth. However, the science behind it is new to me. And so it's been fascinating for me to get the privilege to actually chat to you in person about this stuff. But I know it will be an absolute privilege and so fascinating for everyone who's tuning into the episode. So it's been a pleasure. Thank you so much for coming to have a chat. I really enjoyed it. Thank you so much for tuning into another episode of A Lot To Talk About. It means the world that you guys are in my corner, that you continue to listen to the show every week. And if you could do me a massive favor by following the podcast on whichever platform you listen to it and sharing this episode in particular with just one friend that you feel would benefit from it, that would mean the world to me and it would help the show grow. The more the show grows, the bigger the guests we get on, the more that we can do and the more we can share and support you guys, the listeners, the viewers of the show. Before I go, I want to pay my respects and recognize the traditional custodians of the land on which we meet and record this podcast. The Aboriginal culture has such a rich history in storytelling. And as a passionate storyteller, I really hope that the stories we share and connect with on the show can allow the many cultures that now call this beautiful land Australia their home to come together and continue to respect the stories and the culture that make this the land it is today. Thank you so much for tuning into A Lot To Talk About. I'll catch you next week.